I want you to imagine yourself for a minute in a whole different career field. I want you to think of yourself as the hiring manager at a top-ranking firm. You sat through countless interviews now. You're trying to find the perfect candidate for a position, and no one has the qualities that you're looking for in a potential employee. You're tired, you're mentally drained, and you're ready to give up before finally you reach your very last candidate. He walks in, he sits at the desk across from you. You ask him, tell me a little bit about yourself, and he takes his opportunity. He says, well, I grew up with a, an incredibly supportive father who pushed me to be successful. So through that success, I've led countless campaigns. I've organized and authorized cross-country humanitarian efforts. I've served as advisors to multiple top-ranking government officials. There have been times that I've correctly predicted periods of both economic growth and downturn. I've led the charge of preparation for both swings of that pendulum. And you're sitting there as the hiring manager thinking, this is the guy. We found him. All that work was worth it for this moment. And he starts saying, okay, we, we got to hire him. We're going to pay him whatever he asks for. We're going we're gonna to do all the things. We're going to give you all the benefits. You start going through all of the things in your mind of, of what this potential candidate now could look like and do for your company. So you perk up a little differently. This is the guy you've been waiting for all day to interview. So the rest of the questions go well. You start moving towards the onboarding stage of the, the interview process. The trainings, the shadowing, you, ex you explain to him that you know, you're going to have to pass some background checks. There's going to be some things that have to happen. And he clears his throat. He says timidly, well, I should probably disclose a few things first. At one point, I was accused of sexual assault. I did serve some time, several years actually, in prison. I sometimes have dreams about people dying, and then they actually die. And in your mind, you think, hold on a second. Maybe this is not the guy for me. Maybe this is not the guy we want to represent our company well. And you kindly show him the door and you never speak to him again. Do you hire this guy? Probably not. What you're going to find, though, is that there's no situation that's ever going to surprise God. What you're going to notice as you read through Scripture, and especially as you go through some of these Old Testament characters, there's no version of your history that is a surprise to God. There's no way that there's anything that you've dealt with or been through or has had happened to you that God doesn't know about. If he's interviewing you for a position, he already knows the background check. He's present with his people in every circumstance. And if there's anything that we're going to get from today, I want you to remember that line. God is present with his people in every circumstance. He knows you. And he knows everything about you. The guy you just interviewed, his name is Joseph. He's the son of the character that we just finished studying, Joseph's life is just one wild roller coaster, but the one constant in this roller coaster is that God is his seat buddy, right? God is sitting right next to him the whole time, and that is the constant theme throughout this entire story, and let me tell you, it is a journey that we're about to go on. As far as ambitious projects to get through in 45 minutes, this is the one. So bear with me. I promise I won't go as long as Pastor Harold. Last week, we looked at Jacob. Jacob is Joseph's father, and Jacob has four wives, which honestly sounds exhausting, right? Um, I love my wife. I don't love four of my wives, right? Um, the, Jake, Jacob's life, it, it's quite complicated because of his family situation. What unfolds is an incredibly difficult display of a tragically broken family, Pastor Harold mentioned this last week. We're not supposed to look at this family and say, that's a good family. Like, that's how I want to structure my home life. No, very, very little in this story has to do with you. So I want you to keep that in mind. This is a story of Jacob and his tragically broken family. It's a family of dysfunction, a family of turmoil, of jealousy, of hatred, of betrayal. This is a story of attempted murder and deception and slavery and allegations and separation and death. And I really, really hope that's not your family today. Like, I really hope that you, you hear this story and you say, oh, thank God that's not my family. Because it's not. This is Jacob's 
family. Nearly everything that could go wrong in this family does go wrong. And this sets up where we're about to head. Jacob, he's the family patriarch. He's the father of the family. He makes his favoritism for his wife, Rachel, very clear. Remember, uh, quite graphically even. He makes it very clear. I love Rachel more than I love my other three wives. And the resentment between the family runs through all of the interactions that he has. And so everyone knows Rachel's the favorite. And it comes up in conflict. As you read the story of Jacob, you notice, man, they all know that Rachel's the favorite. And it's going to cause, con- have you ever seen sister wives? It's like that all the time. And Rachel knows she's the favorite. Jacob knows that Rachel is the favorite. And Rachel, his favorite wife, gives birth to his two favorite sons. But one of them, because Jacob likes to pick his favorites, is Joseph. And Joseph is the favorite child of the favorite wife of this very dysfunctional family. As it says, Joseph the favorite. (laughs) Even still, Jacob chooses Joseph as his favorite. And so he does something to show his favoritism to Joseph. But not just to Joseph. It's a purposeful display so that the whole family knows how Joseph is the favorite. He makes a special robe. It's a very special, famous robe, made famous by Andrew Lloyd Webber. You can picture a coat of many colors if if you're more of the Dolly Parton type, or an embroidered robe, or a technicolor dream coat. It doesn't really matter, because honestly, the Hebrew word is kind of tricky, and we don't really know exactly what this robe was like, except that it symbolized a very special status and a very particular favoritism that Jacob had for his son, Joseph. The point is... It's a symbol and significant to show the other brothers that Joseph is the favored one. And so I want you to imagine, put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a second. Imagine what this would do to your character. If you know that you're the father's favorite child of his favorite wife, and he purposely shows you favoritism, I just want you to imagine how that's going to color your interactions how it's going to affect the way that you interact with everyone else in your family. Because it will affect the way that Joseph interacts with everyone in his family, specifically his brothers. Our story starts in Genesis chapter 37, verse 2. Joseph is only 17 years old, and he tended the sheep with his brothers. The young man was working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought a bad report about them, his brothers, to their father. So, what's happening here, the phrase of bringing a bad report has connotations of relaying gossip. It's this understanding that he's slandering his brothers. When you go to Proverbs and it talks about how a wise person does not gossip and slander others, it's the same exact phrase that's being used. Joseph isn't just going and saying, hey dad, the brothers are off working with the sheep. No, he's gossiping and slandering about how lazy his no good brothers are because he's allowed his father's favoritism to color the way that he treats and interacts with his family. He's not being honorable. He's not being magnanimous and just, you know, oh, I wanted you to know the truth. No, he's purposely trying to slander his brothers to someone that he knows holds him in higher regard than them. And his brothers are honestly just having none of it. They, they're not interested in this. In fact, they are resentful at their lowered status for the younger brother, and they hate Joseph. The phrase, the brothers hate Joseph, is repeated often in this story. And it's not even the kind of hate that you can hide. It's the hate where, and let's actually, let's quote it. It's the hate where they could not even bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. I hate you so much I can't even pretend to like you. That's how deeply broken this family dynamic is is. You, you, I mean, do you think your family ever has drama? I'm sure you do. My family has drama sometimes. But try being one of the 12 sons to your one father with four wives, and your stepmom is your aunt, and you're definitely not one of the favorite children. And I promise <laughs> these guys have some family drama happening, and the least thing that they need is for their little brother to be a punk all the time <laughs> and remind him, hey, I'm daddy's favorite. We know, Joseph. They can't even speak peaceably to him. It's not an annoying little brother thing. This is like a I can't stand you kind of thing. And obviously they're wrong for that kind of perspective, but uh, at least when I was growing up and I heard this story, I always just heard the, the brothers as this bad, these bad guys. And I mean, they do some terrible things. We'll get there in a minute. But, but at least understand where they're coming from, right? 
Joseph really sets them up not to like him and gives them a lot of reasons not to like him. In fact, let, let's just do this. One day, Joseph, again, the favorite son, he goes to sleep, he has a dream. And in this dream, all the brothers are out in their fields binding the sheaves of grain. And at one point, my family was in this uh, country church, um, and at least like every other week, we'd sing this horrible song um, that was like, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, we should come rejoicing. I still don't know, like I didn't know what a sheave was. And so, and so I would sing it, and I had no clue. So little, he's like 12-year-old Jeremy, and he was tiny. He just sat there, confused, singing about bringing in sheaves. And I think I'd mostly forgotten about sheaves until I was preparing for this week. Anyway, a sheaf, a sheaf, singular, is a bundle of wheat stalks, like grain, long, tall grain, that's bundled together after it's been gathered, and you set up this like pyramid bonfire of grain. So when you're gathering up sheaves of grain, you take it, you bundle it in in little, you know, things, and you stack them up. You can tell I'm very agricultural in nature, right? <laughs> so in this dream, he, he's dreaming. The brothers are binding, binding the sheaves of grain. Genesis 37, 7 says, There they were, binding sheaves of grain in the field. Remember, this is a dream. Suddenly, my sheaf stood up, and your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. So Joseph's dream. He and his brothers are tying up the sheaves. Joseph's bundle stands up taller than any of the others, and all of his brother's sheaves together gather around and bow down to him. So, again, Joseph. This is like a hearty combination of both arrogance and naivety. He decides to tell his family about this dream. Um, <laughs> listen, brothers who hate me, one day all of you are going to be under my reign. So, of course, I mean, just imagine, his brothers are not going to take to this kindly. So what happens, all of the brothers are out working as shepherds, except for Joseph, who's at home not working. Again, you understand why they don't like him. They're all out doing their shepherding business, and he's at home with daddy. Uh, just, Jacob sends Joseph off. Um, I'm skipping some part. I'm sorry. There, there's a whole, I'm skipping ahead of the story. There's a part in your life where you have to be very cautious about tact. Right? So Joseph decides, I'm going to tell my brothers about this dream where they're all bowing down to me. And he forgets that tact is his friend. And it would be my pastoral advice to you that if you ever have a prophetic vision in a dream where you, know, you chronicle your family bowing down to you and you're already the declared favorite, keep that one to yourself. Okay? Like, don't tell the family about that one. They don't need to know about that particular dream. Tact is your friend. Pastor Harold and I were talking about this as we were preparing. Imagine how much better off we'd be if we started making habit of self-assessing questions. Like just imagine how much better off our circumstances would be if we paused to ask ourselves, what can I do to improve my situation? Imagine how much better off we'd be if we stopped and said, what is my involvement in this conflict? Just, just if, we, if we took made habits of self-assessing ourselves and saying, why am I feeling this way? And what does it say about my brokenness? Or if I were to respond in that way, what would, other, or would other people's perception of me push them closer to Christ? We need to start getting in, in the habit of some self-assessment before we start being too reactive. But unfortunately, I wasn't around to warn Joseph. Um, and in a move that just you know, illuminates his self, lack of self-awareness, he tells his brothers about this. And uh, the Bible tells us this dream just made Joseph's brothers hate him even more. So they tell, he tells them the dream, expecting it to go well. It doesn't go well. The brothers hate him more. And so then Joseph goes back to sleep. He has another dream. This time, it's not about sheaves of grain. It's not even just about his brothers. Now it's the sun, the moon, and coincidentally, 11 stars who bow down to him. He has this vision of, of leading the entire family, even the sun and moon, meaning his father and his mother, bowing down to him. Um, and again, it didn't go well the first time. I'm not sure what his expectation was the second time, but it doesn't go well again. So here, here's where it is. So now the brothers are out working as shepherds, except for Joseph, who's at home with daddy, not working. Jacob, the father, sends Joseph off to go check in with the brothers. He says, hey, I, I need you to go like spy on them. 
Tell me how they're doing. Are they actually working out there? Because I don't feel like they're working. Again, remember, he's asking the brother who's not working to go look at the brothers who are working and come back and tell him whether or not they're working. You, you get why they're resentful towards Joseph. He's asking him to tattle on him. Verses 13 and 14. Israel. Remember, so when, when Jacob wrestles with the angel, it's a whole other story. God gives him the secondary name of Israel. So when you see Israel, it's talking about Jacob here. Israel said to Joseph, your brothers, you know, are, are pasturing the flocks at Shechem. Get ready. I'm sending you to them. Joseph very quickly replies, oh, I'm ready. Then Israel said to him, go and see how your brothers and the flocks are doing and, and bring, bring word back to me. So he sent him from the Hebron Valley and he went to Shechem. I'm telling you, the favoritism runs deep and Joseph plays right into it. And meanwhile, the brothers who are off working see Joseph coming from a distance. They saw him in the distance. And before he had reached them, they had already plotted to kill him. Like, oh, please, don't you dare tell us about another dream. We can't stand it. We're going to kill you. But they're serious about it. They said to another, oh, look, here comes that dream expert. So now, come on, let's kill him Let's throw him into one of the pits. We can say that a vicious animal ate him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Like, oh, we've got a real quick and easy solution for this guy. So they ambush him. And look at the mockery. They call him the dream expert. Your Bible is full of sarcastic people. These guys are not, they don't actually think he's a dream expert. They're mocking him. Reuben is the eldest of the brothers. Remember, of the least favorite brothers. He's the eldest of them all. Which means that he's responsible for whatever happens here as the firstborn. He's responsible for the outcome here. So he's thinking, I don't see this going well. So he chimes in, he tells his brothers, maybe we shouldn't kill him. Maybe we should just like throw him in the pit and teach him a lesson, right? This reminds me of the Princess Bride when the dread pirate Robert, Robert says to uh, Wesley, he says, good night, Wesley. Good work, sleep well. I'll most likely kill you in the morning, right? <laughs> it, it's kind of that vibe. Like, eh, I guess we can, we'll just leave him in the pit. We can decide to kill him tomorrow. It'll be fine. He'll be fine. So what they do is they strip the robe off of Jake, uh, Joseph that Jacob had given to him. They strip it off. They say, listen, there's only one thing that proves that you're the favorite. We're going to get rid of that right now. So they take it off. And just think about it. This is the only representation of Joseph's dreams actually being a reality. Because he's got these dreams of him being the favorite child. There's only one thing right here that says that he is. They take it off. They strip away the representation of his favoritism. Now, there's nothing to show for Joseph being elevated above his brothers. They throw him into the pit, which is like this giant empty water cistern, another word that I googled this week, and they continue on with their plans to murder him. But they hold off for just a little bit because Reuben asked nicely. But first, they stop for dinner because, you know, murder can wait. Um, <laughs> off in the distance, they see these merchants coming in. And they look at him and they say, you know, we really don't, Reuben's maybe right. We don't really have anything to gain from Joseph's death. So instead, they come up with this plan. Let, let's just sell him as a slave. Let's just sell him into Egypt. So they take Joseph's coat, they cover it in blood from a, from a goat, they sell him off into slavery, and they trick Jacob, the father, into believing that Joseph had been killed, and that was that, the end of the Joseph problem. We're done with it. We're over it, and we're done. And they think they've gotten rid of him. Joseph's expectations here are that he ends up ruling. He has reason to believe, validly so. The dream is a valid dream. It's a valid prophetic moment in Joseph's life that he should have kept to himself, but it's still real and valid. He has reason to believe that his family is going to end up bowing down to his command. His dream sets him up with the promise of success and reign. And what's happening to him now is the complete opposite of his dream. He's not rising up as a ruler. He's literally lowered down beneath the ground as his brothers mock him and subject him to a life of slavery. He's now Joseph the slave, not the favorite. But before we get to that, let's zoom out for a second. Because I want you to notice something about this story. God is not in the story yet. At no point, I mean, like, obviously he's present and active and working. We, we believe that. That's a, a core tenet of what we believe. But at the same time, in this story, God's part has been silent. He's not here yet. And this is purposeful. This is not a moment where the story is telling you something about God. It's bringing you into the world 
of the story. The story intentionally focuses in on the dysfunction of the family before it can then shift to redemption. It's purposely painting a godless picture for you so that then when redemption occurs, you see God's hand moving it. I've given Joseph a hard time in this so far. He's immature, he's arrogant, he's naive, he's not even remotely self-aware. But you're going to start seeing, from this point on, a critical shift in Joseph's character as the story progresses. Imagine the circumstances. He's a 17-year-old kid. Because he's his father's favorite child, he's had certain privileges afforded to him that his siblings have never received. So his entire outlook has been shaped from that perspective. And I get it. I understand. Because all of his life he's been coddled and shown favoritism, and he's operating from that lens and from that framework. He's a dreamer who expects success and authority. But instead, he's subjected to a life of slavery in another country. He doesn't know anyone there. He doesn't speak the language. He doesn't understand his new context. The first time, I mean, you were talking about Romania. The first time I went to Romania, I remember I first flew into Hungary, where someone was supposed to pick me up from the airport. This part was not very well planned. They just said, someone will be there. So uh, I'm flying alone. I get there. I land. Um, and I'm just like looking around for someone to take me to a different country. I'm traveling by myself. I land in Budapest, Hungary. I get off the plane. I walk up. Oh, thank the Lord. There's this long line of like angry mobsters holding signs that say names. So I go down the list, and my name is not on any of these signs. I'm like, well, this is not good. This is actually very bad. Um, I pull out my phone to make a call, and as it turns out, to make an international phone call, you have to have an international phone call plan, which I did not have, um, <clears throat> which is a problem. I suggest you get that before you travel. Uh, I ask someone for help. There's this guy who walks past me. I ask him for help. He just like mumbles back to me in disgruntled European. Um, and I, I didn't understand him. He didn't understand me. So at that point, I just figure, okay, well, maybe the guy's outside. So I just walk outside. He's not there. So then I just like start walking the streets of Hungary. Maybe I can find someone to take me to another country. I don't know. I'm not sure I told my wife this story. I'm realizing now. We'll talk later. It's terrifying. I, I eventually found the other country. It's okay. Um, it's terrifying not knowing anyone and not knowing a language and and feeling the weight and burden of being a stranger. And I know that you know, me getting lost in some airport doesn't compare to your brothers faking your death and selling you into slavery, but just imagine the isolation that Joseph felt as a 17-year-old child who's never faced a hardship. And now he's struck with possibly the most demoralizing and dehumanizing fate that a person can experience. Something, well, actually the main thing, that we're going to keep seeing from Joseph's story is that God is always present with his children. And if there's anything to know and recall from today, it's that God is always present with his children. And this is true whether you notice it or not. God hasn't shown up in the words of this story yet, but it doesn't mean that he's not present with Joseph. Just because he doesn't see him doesn't mean that he's not there I can't even tell you how often people ask me, why can't I feel God's presence? Maybe what you should do instead is praise him for his presence, even when you can't feel it. Because that's now a true display of faith. Your misperception of God's absence does not negate his presence. Just because you feel like he's not there doesn't make him disappear. It means that you're not looking and you're not having faith to feel his presence when he is present. He is there. You can think him to be absent, but you are very, very wrong because he is very, very present. The next chapter, the story takes this weird, unrelated turn. It's rated R. Um, we don't have the time or therapy to go over it, so we're going to skip over it. Um, but just know, if you, if you want a wild time, check out Genesis 38. Um, but not right now, and children, maybe never. Um, so the, the brothers sell Joseph to slavery. 
Joseph is taken into Egypt, and one of Pharaoh's officers, his name is Potiphar, buys him. And here, here is God's grand entrance into the story, 39-2. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with him in slavery. As the story progresses, we see the evidence of God being with Joseph. Notice all the positive phrases that we're going to read. Just, just notice how positive this is. Now Joseph had been taken to Egypt. An Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards, bought him from the Ishmaelites who brought him there. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man, serving in the household of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made everything he did successful, Joseph found favor with his master and became his personal attendant. Still a slave, though. Potiphar also put him in charge of his household, placed all that he owned under his authority. From that time that he put him in charge of his household, and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house because of Joseph. The Lord's blessing was on all that he owned in his house and in the fields he left all that he owned under Joseph's authority, and he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. God's hand is clearly, clearly on Joseph's life. He is under the authority of his master Potiphar, and yet the Lord still chooses to bless him with success and favor. And that success now creates circumstances where Potiphar promotes him to the caretaker of the house and everything he owned, and this is a big deal. It's like the higher that Potiphar ranks Joseph, the more prosperous the house becomes. But remember, this is Joseph's story and not your story. So you can't necessarily expect grand success in difficult circumstances because Joseph's circumstances are not yours. But God is the same now as he was then, and he is in the habit of wanting to spend time with his children. But notice here, there's a lot of success happening, but God doesn't remove Joseph from the difficult circumstances. Joseph is still a slave. And so while God is showing him favor and success in the situation and circumstances that he finds himself in, he's not removed from the situation that he's in. God doesn't provide a pathway back to his homeland and out of the bondage he's in. He doesn't solve every problem that Joseph is facing. No, instead, God meets him in the middle of where he currently is and he stays with him. The Lord was with him. Hardships don't just go away because you ask for them to. And that's, that's a tricky thing to swallow sometimes. Is that just because you ask for things to get better... And just because you ask for your circumstances to change, it doesn't always mean that it's going to happen. You don't think Joseph never appealed to God, God, make me not a slave anymore. Return me to my homeland. Surely he did, and yet here he is still in the bondage of slavery. But what you find is that this hardship is shaping him in to something better, something more mature. The hardship that he's facing right now removes the naivety and the arrogance from his favored youth, and instead it grants him the experience and the perspective that he needs to become more fully formed. God is with you even when your circumstances are against you. He's still with you. And to say, oh, I want all of my circumstances to be different. I want, I want to live a different way. I want the things that are working against me to not be working against me anymore. I wish I was elsewhere. I wish my life didn't look like this. I wish I had a better job or a different whatever. That's, that kind of mindset negates God's presence. What you're saying is that if only these things were better, I could more fully feel God's presence. God is with you regardless of your circumstances. John 14 is one of the, the great Trinitarian chapters in your Bible. And what I mean by that is that each member of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, are all represented and described in this chapter, John 14. One of my favorite verses is Jesus' explanation of how the Holy Spirit forever remains and abides in the believer. It says this, Jesus is talking, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor, the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world, they're unable 
to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and he will be in you. God meets you wherever you are, and you don't need your circumstances to change for that to be true. No situation is too broken for God to meet with you. No tragedy is too great for God to meet with you. No injustice done against you is too extreme for God to meet with you. No mistake you've made or arrogance you've shown or problems that you've encountered are too overwhelming for God to meet with you. He remembers where you are, and he is very much present in every one of your circumstances, even when those circumstances look nothing like what you expect them to look like. God isn't at fault for Joseph being held captive here. God's not the one to blame here. Joseph's brothers are the ones to blame here. Joseph is in slavery, not because God put him in slavery, but because Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, right? But God is really good at taking our terrible circumstances and situations and then reforming them into something redemptive and good. And when people honor the Lord, the blessing of his presence follows, even in the worst of situations. And in Joseph's case, a best case scenario of a terrible situation, you know, a, a highly favored slave is still a slave. So the best case scenario of a terrible situation is about to just come crashing down around him. Now we see him, Joseph the slave. Now he's Joseph the accused. Verse 6 says, Now Joseph was well built and handsome. After some time, his master's wife looked longingly at Joseph and said, Sleep with me. But he refused. Look, he said to his master's wife, With me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. And he has put all that he owns under my authority, and no one in this house is greater than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except for you, because you are his wife. So how could I do this immense evil, and how could I sin against God? And although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. The Old Testament, and this is true pretty much across the board, it only tells you what people looked like when it matters to the story that's being told. It, it's, it's a really fascinating thing. If you ever read the Old Testament, you say, oh, that's interesting. They described what that guy looked like. It's because that's an important and pertinent piece of information. We saw it last week with Rachel. Right? How, how, Joseph, how Jacob favored Rachel because of her shapeliness. And here we see Rachel's son Joseph now being called well-built and handsome, and that's on purpose because it sets up the longing that Potiphar's wife had for him. She sees Joseph. She makes a proposition for them to go to bed. And Joseph's response is, one, how could I do such an irresponsible thing with the authority that's been given to me? And two, how could I sin against God? I mentioned earlier, we're going to see a major shift in Joseph's character. The last time that we have a quote from Joseph, like his words written down in the Bible, it's when he's in pursuit of gossip to share with his dad about his brothers. That's the last time we hear him was as a a little punk child. And now we see him saying, how could I be so irresponsible and offend my God? He's lived an incredible amount of life in a relatively short amount of time. He's faced an unbelievable level of hardship. And yet his perspective still has become more directly toward God and away from himself. He's lived a a lot of very difficult life in the past few years. And that has turned him closer to God and away from himself. Which is a good question. Do your hardships cause you to focus on yourself? Or do they cause you to focus on God? Do you ask yourself, God, in what way am I being transformed through these circumstances to be more like you? Or do you dwell on self-defeat? with lines like, why is this happening to me? I don't deserve this. Joseph chooses not to focus on himself here. and He said he focuses on the Lord. He allows the facets of integrity and honorability and godliness to shine through him instead of giving into what would have been just the easiest temptation. And what happens is every single day, Potiphar's wife attempts to lure Joseph into her impropriety. Day after day, She finds Joseph 
She doesn't even ask him. She demands that he sleep with her. And day after day, Joseph refuses until one day she grabs him by the garment, which guy's got to get a belt or something because this is becoming a problem now. She grabs him by the garment and he escapes in a panic, leaving his robe in her hands. She then uses that as a moment to falsely accuse Joseph of attempted rape. She called her household servants. Look, she said to him, them, my husband brought a Hebrew man to make fools of us. He came to me so he could sleep with me, and I screamed as loud as I could. And when he heard me screaming for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside, and she won the Oscar. She tells her husband the same exact story, which, by the way, Potiphar is a military commander. He's a scary dude, and he puts Joseph furiously in prison. And listen, Joseph has done everything right. For as critically as we looked at him earlier, he's, he's a pretty, do, pretty good dude right now. He's doing a good job. He's trying his very best to honor God with very difficult circumstances. He's doing everything right. Have you ever felt like life is falling apart and in shambles, and you do a quick assessment, and you think to yourself, what am I doing wrong here? And you come up with no answer? That's Joseph right now. Sometimes, actually oftentimes, most of the times even, our difficult circumstances are direct consequences of our own attitudes and actions. When you have difficult circumstances, they're more than likely tied to your actions and your attitudes. And when we want to point at others for blame or point at God for inaction or pointing to our context for reason for our circumstances, we should instead be pointing to ourselves. So that is the normal issue, is that we are the problem. But Joseph is not the problem here. He's done everything right. And he's still not seeing the manifestation of favor that he dreamt of all those years ago. He's not seeing the fruition of those dreams that I'm sure by now feels like just an eternity away. And yet he's still, even now, doing the right thing, being accused, doesn't jump to the conclusion that God is absent in his circumstances. The Lord was with him. Now he's the prisoner. The very next verse, Joseph is in prison. It starts like this. But the Lord was, where was the Lord? The Lord was still, he was still with Joseph and extended kindness to him. And he granted him favor with the prison warden. The Lord was still with Joseph. The Lord extended kindness to Joseph in prison, in the place where kindness is least likely to be expected and definitely not going to be noticed. But the Lord was present and right there alongside Joseph. And Joseph, guys, was awesome in prison. He was awesome. As far as prisoners go, you couldn't have been better than Joseph. He's put in charge of the other prisoners as a prisoner himself. He's given Full authority within the prison. Like, hey, have at it, but just don't leave, okay? He's given full authority within the prison. And he was as successful a prisoner as you could be in jail because of God's kindness. And while he's in charge, two new inmates come in from Pharaoh's court, which, as a side note, these are some terrible working conditions. Um, do one thing your boss doesn't like, and he's just like, eh, off with his head. You know, put him in prison. You don't need to read this one. So the royal cupbearer and the, and the palace baker end up in prison, two of, of the pharaoh's like, council. The royal cupbearer, which, what a job. You just hold a cup and fill it up every once in a while. He apparently didn't do it well at some point. So the royal cupbearer, <laughs> no, honestly, what, what probably happened is the royal cupbearer had to be a very trustworthy individual because oftentimes when these leaders would die, it's because they were poisoned. And so the royal cupbearer would often take a sip beforehand to prove that the drink wasn't poisoned before handing it off to the pharaoh. Yeah, yeah, who knows. So, the royal cupbearer and the palace baker end up in prison. Ultimately, underneath Joseph's authority, because he's kind of the, the guy in charge. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they looked distraught. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? Well, we had dreams. They said to him, and Joseph's like, oh, I know about dreams. Never come true. <laughs> but there's no one to interpret them. Now here, Joseph's getting a little more gracious. He could have just been like, nah, I'm over dreams. They're clearly not, not a thing. But instead he says to them, 
Don't interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. He's patient and kind and listens. What happens next is they both explain their wild dreams that seemingly made no sense, and Joseph graciously offers to interpret them. He interprets the dreams and predicts that in three days, the baker would tragically put to death, and in the same period, the cupbearer would be set free from prison and restored. Again, just put yourself in Joseph's shoes here. Imagine how demoralizing that would feel. Joseph remembers the dream that he had at 17 years old, and now it's been years with no realization of that dream. And now these guys get to see the fruition of their dreams within days, although the one guy probably didn't want to. Um, And what you're going to see is that he transitions from being just a prisoner, and God's favor is going to continue to be with him, and his circumstances are going to change. There's a huge gap in the story now. Two years pass by, Joseph is still in prison, and Pharaoh has this just bizarre dream about cows eating other cows and stuff, and he's a very confused Pharaoh when he wakes up. And Pharaoh reaches out to all of his advisors, and none of them can interpret dreams, until finally this cupbearer says, I remember there's this guy when I was in prison, because you hated me for those five minutes, remember? I was in prison, and I met this guy, and he told me about my dream, and sure enough, it came true, you should go talk to him. Then Pharaoh sent for Joseph, And they quickly brought him from the dungeon. He shaved, changed his clothes, and went to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have a dream, and no, a dream, a dream, no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said about you that you can hear a dream and interpret it. And Joseph said, I am not able to. It is God who will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Remember, now he's, again, pushing any kind of attention away from himself and on to God instead. Pharaoh describes this dream to Joseph, and sure enough, Joseph just interprets the whole thing. The dream foretold seven years of abundance and seven years of famine, and Pharaoh is impressed, and he immediately takes Joseph and grants him extreme favor. Joseph has been out here solving everyone else's problems, and his dream still still hadn't come true until now. Now Joseph is finally going to start seeing some dream fruition, right? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as discerning and wise as you are. You will be over my house and all my people will obey your commands. Only I as king will be greater than you. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, see, I am placing you over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him with fine linen garments and placed a gold chain around his neck. He had Joseph ride in his second chariot and servants called out before him, make way. So he placed him over all the land of Egypt. And just like that, Joseph the slave, Joseph the accused, Joseph the prisoner becomes Joseph the ruler. In one moment, every bit of Joseph's circumstances were flipped upside down. And most of the time, God is going to develop you steadily and slowly. And we look back And we can see this upward progression that's happened through a course of a very long time. But other times, instead of that, we wait and we wait and we wait and you remain patient and you just dwell with God because he is with you and you continue waiting and you have to keep exercising patience until suddenly everything falls into place and everything changes. Friends, be patient. This conflict may be leading to a greater resolution. And maybe the resolution you would have gotten a year ago wouldn't have been good enough. Maybe God is putting all the pieces together for a greater resolution from this conflict. You may be waiting because what you need right now, instead of the resolution, you might be waiting because what you actually need right now is time with God, not the advancement of your dreams. That's what Joseph needed. Joseph didn't need for all of his dreams to come true while he was a 17-year-old kid. That would have been disastrous. Instead, what he needed was some hardships and some difficult circumstances and a whole lot of time for God to spend with him before his dreams could be advanced. God never left Joseph. Time and time again, we read that in spite of circumstances, God was with him. And maybe you need to be more content with just being with God. Maybe you need to be better with that, of just being content with God being with you. Instead of asking why or when, or how, or what, or where. Maybe you should be dwelling in the contentment of the with whom. 
Because maybe the why and the what and the how and the whole thing doesn't matter as much as who you're with. And God is with you. Joseph's story now, it ramps down to its conclusion. Everything has fallen into place for Joseph, but one aspect of his dream is incomplete. He still hasn't seen his brothers in years. So the famine that Joseph predicted from Pharaoh's dreams, it comes true, and people across the region are starving, and Joseph is the guy to skillfully lead the country through this time of famine, and he saves countless people from dying because of his preparation, his policy, and his procedure. And what happens is his brothers then travel down to Egypt to buy grain. Joseph, being the guy in charge, but now living under an Egyptian name, a whole new identity, calls them in, they don't recognize him, and they bow down to him with their faces on the ground, suddenly sounding very familiar to a particular childhood dream. Joseph the dreamer. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered his dreams. And a whole lot of family drama, because, of course, a whole lot of family drama happens in the next few chapters because these guys just can't help themselves until finally Joseph can't contain the secret any longer. This is like three chapters later. Joseph says to his brothers, please, come near me. And they came near, and he says, I am Joseph, your brother. He said, the one you sold into Egypt. Now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves. For selling me here. Because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. So Joseph brings the whole family back together. He's reunited with his father, and for once, there's a little semblance of health in this family. Eventually, Jacob, the father, dies. And the, brother worry, the brothers, they all worry, okay, was Joseph just being nice to us because dad was around? Seriously, that's how it goes. Just like, was he, was he just pretending? So they're worried about whether or not the peace will continue. Joseph, he's in this position of power now, and he can treat them however he pleases. Whatever he says goes, and however he wants to treat his brothers is what's going to happen. So the brothers bring an appeal of forgiveness. They say, hey, before dad died, he said you should forgive us, which you know, sounds questionable, right? But he br- they bring this appeal of forgiveness. And if it was the Joseph from the beginning of the story, had the dream come true then, this would not have gone well. But we're dealing now with a Joseph who has grown from his hardship and his experiences, a Joseph who refuses to be defined by difficulty. This is now a Joseph who is kind and gracious and wise, and now Joseph has a new perspective. He sees the pain, he sees the waiting, he sees the disappointment, he sees the suffering and the injustice, and he sees how God used the very worst of his circumstances to bring forward a great deliverance. And Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me? Sure. But God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. He comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This story of Joseph begins with an attempted death, and the story closes with a very fulfilled life. Not only that, it begins and ends with a dream. His first dream pointed to his own glory, but his last dream points to God's glory. Our our thesis chapter has been Hebrews 11. This is where all of the pinnacle figures of faith are listed in the New Testament. So when you think about, okay, well, how are they going to describe Joseph's faith? What are they going to really point out here? Because there's lots of moments that I can point to of Joseph having faith, right? Like, I wonder which part of this wild story they're going to illuminate in Hebrews 11 to say, hey, remember that time that Joseph was in these circumstances and he had faith. I wonder which one he's going to use. The author of Hebrews says this, by faith, Joseph, as he was nearing the end of his life now, mentioned the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions concerning his bones. Seems kind of weird. There's There's a lot of really great moments to illuminate a very faithful life lived. The word mentioned here means to call to mind 
or to remember. It's not just like, oh, you know, hey, let's, let's go to, you know, Chili's after this. No, it's make mention as far as like I'm going backwards and remembering something and then mentioning that. And on his deathbed, what happens is Joseph recalls God's prophetic promise to Abraham that the Israelites would one day experience their exodus into freedom. And Joseph's final request was that he wait to be buried until his people made it there. Joseph was so confident that God's presence was sure. He was so confident that the Lord was with him that he postponed his body's final rest until he could be buried when God's covenant promise of freedom was fulfilled. This word mentioned, it's also in Hebrews chapter 13, where the author says, remember your leaders, remember, make mention of, recall, your leaders who have spoken God's word to you as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. In our great Hall of Faith chapter, observe the outcomes of the lives of these examples. The faith of Joseph wasn't notable because he was faithful through slavery, which he was. He's not remembered for being faithful through accusations, though he was. He's not remembered for being faithful through imprisonment and injustice, although he was. The author of Hebrews makes a very specific point to remember Joseph for being forward-focused. Wait to bury me until God's promises come true. That's true confidence in God's presence. That's forward-focused faith. And by the way, the promise did come true. The people did make their exodus into freedom, and Joseph was buried exactly where and when he faithfully looked toward. But he didn't need to be worried about the present, which I think is the point that the Hebrews author is making. He didn't need to be worried about what's happening right now, because God never left his side. He didn't have to have this incredible faith for right now, because he knew that God was with him. Instead, he continued dreaming of the future, knowing that one day all of God's promises would come true. And in every moment, regardless of the highs or the lows, the Lord made his presence known to Joseph. I'm confident, I'm confident that Joseph didn't always feel the presence of God because he's human. But I also know that he was confident in the presence of God. If you were to zoom into any one portion of Joseph's life, you'll find a chapter that just seems insurmountable. Like there's no way that this can be overcome. Keep reading. Because God was present in the hardship and God was faithful all the way to the future. If you ever find yourself enslaved and imprisoned to your unfortunate circumstances, find joy in knowing that this is just a chapter and not the finale. You're too now focused. God's with you right now. You don't have to be worried about right now. True faith is knowing that God is still going to be with you. That you can look back and know God's always been with me. Why would I be worried about what's to come? Why would I be anxious about what my circumstances look like? God's proven himself to be faithful time and time again, and so I'm going to live my life with a forward-focused faith that makes me confident in his current presence. What I'd love to do now, I'd love for you all to stand and bow your heads together. Knowing that your situation right now is just a chapter in God's story unfolding, what it does is it allows us to remain focused on the future fulfillment of promises to us. We don't have to be crippled by our circumstances if we have faith in God's presence and the future hope that we have in him. And I think if we got in the habit of praising God even in our difficulties, for his continued presence, then we'd be more likely to dwell on him and less likely to be crippled by our difficulties. So now, maybe you need to spend some time in just self-reflection and assessment. Are you allowing your conflict to shape you into a more fully developed believer? Or are you just a victim of your circumstances? Because God's with you right now. If you're his child, he's with you right now. Maybe you need to exercise patience with the full understanding that the hope that you have right now may not be fulfilled for some time. 
Maybe you just need to calm down and be patient. Knowing that God has something for you later, have faith in that, but be confident in the presence that he has with you now. You ever feel stagnant in your walk with Christ? Do you ever think to yourself, where is God? Why don't I feel him in my life? Why don't I feel refreshed like I used to? Maybe you're so focused on the right now that you've lost sight of what's to come. Have faith for God's continued presence in your future. He's with you right now, and he'll still be with you then. Maybe you need to slow down and trust him when he says that his spirit remains in you. And maybe things feel unsettled in your life because your story isn't done yet. Maybe you feel like there's no resolution right now because it's not resolved yet. God is still with you. Be at peace that his presence is very near. God, we are forever thankful for your presence in our lives. And we we just want to repent for our self-centeredness. Because in that we are ignoring your continuous dwelling and rest within us. God, I just ask that you make yourself so clearly seen to the people here who maybe right now are finding themselves in this pit or in the prison or in a particular challenge that might seem too difficult to overcome right now. God, I ask that you grant them the peace of your presence, that you make yourself so known to them that they can rest confidently knowing that you are with them in every circumstance. God, I ask that you allow our hardships to mold us into something better, but not just better for ourselves, but more usable for the advancement of your kingdom. Help us shift our focus away, away from our present circumstances and instead focus toward your continual presence in our lives. Make your presence obvious and known to us as we serve you. In this song, Jesus' name I pray. Check, check. That was incredibly challenging. Thank you. I feel like you corrected a little bit of my bad theology right there. And uh, God has spoken through you because when we start talking about having lives that have difficulties, we are now talking to everybody in the room. There's nobody here this morning that message was not for. I thought about one point right there when you were speaking, how challenging that was also on the issue of being self-aware. Young Joseph was not self-aware. And I would almost like to give an invitation for us to repent of our lack of self-awareness, but if you don't have self-awareness, you wouldn't know that you're the person that needs to be at the altar. (laughs) So I don't know how to deal with that. But, um, you know, a lot of conflict is caused even in the family of God, our personal families, But even in the family of faith, because people are immature and they don't have self-awareness. And so you're just doing what you do, being who you are, and you don't realize how it affects people around you. It's a sign of immaturity, both social and spiritual. And uh, so as conflicts happen in in faith community too, uh, running away is never an issue, never an answer to that. Growing, remaining faithful, and letting God do what he's going to do in our lives. I was just thinking, of, because, you know, Pastor, we know a lot of the difficulty that our people are dealing with. That just frames a lot of the difficulty. Uh, one of our church members who's never not in the room is Alan Smith. He, he's dealt with some health issues this week and can't be here this morning. And that's incredibly rare. You know, God is with us in our moments. He always has been. He's never not been there. He is here. (laughs) He will be here tomorrow. He is absolutely faithful, and that's why you can put your faith in him. That is awesome. Uh, Quick announcement before we go, and uh, we're glad you're here this morning to to be a part of all that happened here missionally and everything. Uh, As the church continues to grow, we have an incredible team, and especially those of you who are new uh, with us or, or only been with us for some services, but even the new members, 
Uh, rarely do we have all the staff out here at once because obviously the children will burn down the building in the back if we all the staff are out here at once. But uh, just for a minute, we've got some volunteers in place. And I, I just want to tell you about a couple of things that have happened. Within the last year, several uh, new employees have come on board with the professional staff of the church. And uh, as our needs change and grow, uh, we add people for different roles. Uh, we try to raise up our own staff from within a disciple-making congregation, if at all possible. And that is certainly what's happening right now within our congregation. And so I just want to take a minute right before we go home, just for all of you to have a visual and to celebrate with us uh, maybe some familiar faces, but you didn't know what their roles were, and maybe some are taking new roles. So let me just quickly have the staff come. Uh, last year, Jesse Guy joined the team uh, as our production assistant. Jesse, where are you at? Can you stand up, please? Oh, just kidding. Uh, come on. Uh, uh, Je- Jesse uh, joined staff as, as production team. Uh, for all of you who, when you're sick or watching at home, you're watching the live feed, you're watching things happen, this is the gal who makes all of that happen. And we're incredibly thankful that she's a, a part of our church team. Uh, Josh Martin also, he's, he's been on board for a while. We just haven't made a big announcement about it. Uh, but uh, Josh is very faithful and capable leading our elementary as our kids director. If you have children in the elementary department, this is uh, the gentleman that's in charge of the elementary department. He and his wife, Kirsten, are incredible disciples. And uh, uh, you're going to be hearing a lot about them in the future because they are just blossoming up and, and growing right here before our eyes. Amen, come ahead. Uh, I think many of you will know Matt and Avon, a couple in our church. Avon also is our early childhood director. If you have children in the preschool or nursery, this is Avon's area of responsibility here at Cornerstone. Uh, and if you are, God's working in your heart and you're ready to volunteer and you've passed your, you know, your, your uh, little probationary period that we have here at Cornerstone to serve with the children, Avon would love to have you as a volunteer. And, and matter of fact, if you have a baby in the nursery, you need to be volunteering. And uh, you birthed that child. Please help us care for it here at Cornerstone. And uh, maybe that came out wrong. You fathered that child. Should I say it that way? You fathered that child. You need to be volunteering in the nursery. I've never said it that way. That felt good. All right. Uh, And so anyway, come, come and help us with that. And Avon does an incredible job. I expect her role to morph again this year at some point. And we're, we're thankful to have her. Uh, Erica McAdoo, you guys know already, she's our student pastor, oversees all of youth and uh, uh, elementary and, and, and kind of coordinates these guys. And we're very thankful for Erica. This may be a new one to you. Garrett, are you here? In the, Garrett, yeah, come on, Garrett. Garrett is now official part of the church staff. Uh, he's come on board just this past week as uh, our facilities manager. Uh, Brother Ray is going to be retiring and has been an incredibly faithful employee. And we just transitioned and onboarded Garrett to be an official part of our staff now as the campus manager. And uh, uh, Erica, Chris, you guys come ahead. And Erica McNair is Jeremy's wife, if you don't know. And Chris, who is just up here singing, who's formerly, as of about 10 minutes ago, our lead deacon. It is no longer. And uh, because once we bring him over to the staff side, we're going to have him step off the deacon board. Eric, are you out there handy anywhere? Uh, Eric. Eric Johnson. Eric, we have Eric, this is Erica, and this is Erica, and this is Eric right out here. <laughs> Eric is your new Cornerstone lead deacon, coordinating all the role of our deacons now, been appointed by the elders. And uh, Eric and Erica, uh, we call this Erica Sr. and Erica Jr. Uh, Erica Sr. and Chris now join the church officially as discipleship pastors. Uh, Erica's role is now changing. And so women's discipleship groups and men's discipleship groups and still coordinating with Jeremy, some are couples groups, but now taking the most active lead role in discipleship. Jeremy, come up here and stand in my place, and I'm going to come down here and stand uh, near, nearer to my wife. No, you go right up there and smile, because uh, Jeff's taking a picture. Um, gosh, you see how hard he is to deal with? Gosh, this is like crazy. Um, all right, here's what I want to say before we dismiss in prayer. My role in Christianity in Texas and in our mission fields for the next five-ish, ten-ish years is transition. I am the past. 
there are a million more reforms that need to be made in our broken churches. We are trying desperately to get those of <clears throat> who grew up in orthodoxy to reform some of the legalism that most of you grew up with. There are still a lot of reforms that need to happen in the church. I don't want them to have to take that beating. You all understand what I'm saying? I'm going to keep reforming, and I'm going to take the beating on the way out. Okay? My challenge to you is God has always been with us. He is with us right now. He will be with us tomorrow. You have nothing to fear. Just follow God and let us keep reforming the church and being good stewards of the church. Let me say it this way. Here is the future and here is the past. Hopefully it's going to be a good past. They hate it when I talk like this. This is the future. You support the future. And God was going to lead you to a great future. Father, we bow before you this morning. God, we believe you are creator of heaven and earth. We believe in you, Jesus Christ, our Lord, God's only Son. Holy Spirit, we believe that you are in our hearts, in the heart of every believer this morning in this room, that you are present with us. Lord, your presence has always been with us. Our proclamation is that we would believe you'll be with us tomorrow and all the way out. God, thank you because you have no, well, you do. <laughs> I was going to say you have no idea, but you absolutely do have an idea of how great that makes us feel this morning. Knowing that we are never, ever alone. We are never outside your care and your compassion and your provision God, you want only the best for us, and you want to groom us into all that you want us to be. And Father, this morning, as one people of God, our answer to your proposition is yes. Have your way in our lives. Make us into the disciples you want us to be. Let us be angled mirrors reflecting you to this world and reflecting the glory and praise and worship of this world back to you.